0: Good morning, both Trinity Church family, both here and online. Hey, so glad that you guys are here, and uh, we are excited to continue our Do One Thing series, which is a year long, uh, and specifically this sub-series for the month of November on the topic of prayer. Now, if you know me at all, you know that I am super passionate about prayer. I love being able to learn, uh, lead, engage, individual, corporate, listening. I mean, whatever. Like I love prayer. And you know what? Uh, Pastor Marvin did a great job last week kind of setting the tone for how we're going to approach this subseries. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that message, I'd highly encourage you to do so. He really just walked us through this idea of the beauty and the intimacy of the relationship um, that we get to have with God and the way that that's the grounding and the foundation for everything that we do in prayer. But here's the thing, as we jump right in, I want to let you know we're going to have some fun today, and there are two key metaphors that we're going to be using as we continue forward on the topic of prayer. And the first of those metaphors relates to something that I engaged a lot as a kid of the 80s. Do I have any Xers in the house? Any Gen Xers? (laughs) Okay, cool. If I'm like, how many boomers do we have in the house? You get like, okay, okay, cool. How many millennials we got in the house? Okay, when I go, how many Xers? We all just go, I'm like, we're kind of sandwiched in the middle there, right? It's kind of funny. Like, I think that's kind of what we're known for. But here's the thing. When it came to music that we liked as Xers, you had to use an ancient piece of technology (laughs) called a cassette tape. Anybody know what I'm talking about? If you're under 30, have you even seen one before? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Okay, okay, like, here's the thing. So like, like if you wanted to be able to build a mixtape of your favorite songs, what you had to do was you had to get a blank cassette tape, and you have two options. You would put the tape in your boom box, and if you were like me, you would sit like a pointer dog with your finger on the record button, waiting for the radio to play that song so you could hit record, or you had to have a friend who had the song because they purchased the album, Suckers. <laughs> that they would like play the song for you and let you record it from their boombox onto yours. And I remember a buddy of mine had a dual cassette boombox. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, and you could like do both on the same thing. Okay, so like, but here's the deal. Building a playlist, that was hard work. You had to be really intentional about it and you had to want it, right? Not like now. Now, like you can build a playlist on a streaming service. Like it's no big deal, man. I mean, I got dozens of playlists. I got playlists for like workouts. I got playlists for worship. I got playlists of my favorite artists. I got playlists for specific seasons. We're getting ready to enter Christmas. Woo! I am just trying to figure out at this point how to not have my family pass out from too much Lauren Daigle and Emily Claire Barlow Christmas music at this particular point. I mean, it's not even December yet, right? And I'm still like, oh, you wanna know what I'm listening to? And they're like, we know. (laughs) Yeah, we know. But here's the deal. In the 80s, you didn't have to buy the whole album for just one song. You just needed to have a way of recording the song. And then you could put it into a particular playlist. But the point was a playlist was a list, a series of cherry picked songs for specific purposes. And and we do that today. We engineer playlists to help us feel the way we want to feel. How many of you have playlists for when I'm sad? When I'm sad, I play this playlist. How many of you are like, I'm getting, oh, okay, like young people, like you're going to do something at an athletic event, right? Like you got a basketball game, a football game. you got like a playlist for that, right? Like you got like a pump up playlist, right? Okay, so like, you know what I'm talking about. We engineer our playlists to help us feel the way we want to feel about given topics. But I think we do this with scripture and particularly with prayer as well. And I think it's kind of dangerous See, rather than looking at the entire album of the expanse of scripture related to the concept of prayer, we tend to emphasize verses or concepts that we like, and then we just sort of dismiss the ones we don't. See, we love us some, give us today our daily bread, ask anything that you want in my name and I will give it to you, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, yeah. Load me up that playlist. Not quite as excited about wait on the Lord. Submission, patience, trusting God in prayer. Nobody puts songs on a playlist that they don't like, right? So I think we do that. I think that what we do is we build playlists on the concept of prayer that are kind of these jigsaw puzzled lists of the verses about prayer we like, right, to the eclipsing of the verses that we don't. And the problem is that gives us a very narrow perspective on the panoramic idea of prayer. And if you don't believe me, I think we got, we've got songs and we've got playlists for getting what we want, right? I mean, they're kind of like, you get this idea, right? Like, hold on. Oh yeah, here we go. Right? Right? Okay, we got that song? We got like a song for the specifics of like when you really are being persistent in prayer. You got it. And when we're like looking for like, you know, I just want God to tell me what to do. I mean, I'm just, I'm like, I'm looking for direction. You know, I'm just really hoping for. Right? That's just a few. Come on, anybody else do that? Is it just me? All right, okay. Okay. But here's the deal. When we do that, we reduce prayer to bumper stickers and throw pillows. And we forget that there's way more to it. And what's worse, then we get mad at God when he doesn't respond the way we want to. Because we usually say something like this, God, these are your songs. These are your words. I'm just singing your songs. Come on, what's going on? I mean, it's right there in scripture. Get with the program. (laughs) But I also think that there are certain denominations and certain brands of theology, man, they take this to an extreme. I have a buddy here on staff who spent a long time with a denomination that you might kind of know under like that sort of umbrella of like prosperity gospel. You might hear it as like the name it, claim it kind of gospel. Right, which, is, which takes this handful of verses about prayer and says that if you just believe enough, if you just demand enough, if you just claim enough, then somehow, either because you have worn him down or because he is legally obligated to, God will just give you whatever it is that you want. He's obligated to. And the problem is that doesn't fit the broader panorama of prayer In the scriptures, but if you've been told that and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've not stopped believing, pretty soon when you don't have that helicopter or you don't have that wife that you demanded, you get really angry and you break up with God. And then you have a different song on your playlist, right? Right? (laughs) That's dangerous, friends. But it is what happens when we build prayer playlists independent of the broader movement of what Scripture has to say. About prayer, And that's what takes us to where we're going to be focusing this morning. So we're going to take a look at the text, and here's the thing. This is from Luke 11, 1 through 13, and this is what it says, but I also want you to be aware, and we're going to refer to this later, that this is also paralleled in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. So if you're like, I don't think that sounds the way that it's—it's okay. Like, it's in both places, and we'll synthesize them at the end. But here's what it says. (coughs) Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him in the middle of the night and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer you from within. Do not bother me. (laughs) Love that. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Wow. OK, there's a lot there, and that's a lot for us to unpack. So let me do this on the front end. First, you've probably noticed that there are three main sections of this passage. The first is in verses one through four, and it's commonly what is referred to as the Lord's Prayer." Uh, if you grew up Catholic like I did, or if you grew up in another liturgical tradition that emphasized um, like specific prayers, this is probably one of the first prayers that you memorized, and there's a reason for that. The reason is because this wasn't a prophet's good idea. This wasn't an earthly king's suggestion. This is literally the way you pray from the son of the living God, the king of kings and Lord of lords. So if he has something to say about prayer, we should listen, right? Okay, so that's kind of a big deal. We wanna start by honoring the fact that Jesus himself is telling us This is how you should pray. And the second thing is that there's in verses five through eight, what is commonly called the parable of the persistent neighbor. Now I like this and I don't like this. And let me tell you why. I like it because I love how the sleeping neighbor responds because of the impudence of his neighbor. And you know, I feel like this sometimes. I'm like, this has got to be annoying to God. This is like the 36th time I've brought this issue to him today so i you know i mean like i love the fact that we actually get to see in scripture that the idea of persistence is a value in prayer what i don't like about it is is that it's obviously annoying right hey hey Hey, are you in there? Wake up. Hey, I got some guests coming from out of town. Can you lend me some bread? I'm just going to keep here standing. I mean, like it actually says because he's his friend, he won't give him anything, but to just, just to shut him up. I don't like thinking of my prayers as obnoxious and annoying. And the thing I like the most is, is in the very next section, nine through 13, we get the parable of the good father. And what I love about that is, is it offsets the idea of annoyance. Our father is not annoyed by our obnoxious prayers. He is a good father. You know, here at Trinity, we actually sing a song called Good, Good Father. And I recognize, like, in in a room like this, some of us had really good dads. Some of us did not. Some of us didn't have dads at all. But regardless of who your dad was, or whether he was a good dad or a bad dad, he wasn't God. So, he wasn't as good as God is. God does not withhold from us. I think sometimes we're afraid to go to God in prayer, because we're afraid that we will ask him for something, and instead he will shut us down, make things harder, just to teach us a lesson. But that's not actually what we see here. We see that God is good. He is not evil. He does not do what is evil, He does not withhold what is good from us. He treats us as beloved children. Those are just three things that we should note right off the bat. But the second thing that we need to take note of here is the second metaphor that I'd like to use. And that is the idea that prayer in Scripture is really not uh, designed to be a personal playlist. It's actually more of the second metaphor, and that is it's really designed to be a prayer symphony. See, while our temptation might be to overemphasize or maybe even strip out verses about daily bread and leading us not into temptation, which are all good things, it's really more meant to operate as a composite and a whole, not just in specific verses or songs that we like while dismissing those that we don't. See, prayer is more like a Western classical music piece, so it's like classical music pieces were not designed to be in these like playlist kind of things. They were designed to be appreciated in total. Like you, it was a commitment. If, if you're going to go, I, I was my buddy Adrian down here was telling me like, man, if you go to Handel's Messiah, it's like a three hour thing. Like we think of it as just one little piece. That's the part that we all know, but like, it's a thing. Like classical composers designed their music to be beyond the sum of the individual parts. A lot of times when we recognize music that's classical, we recognize it, but we don't realize, or we forget, or we don't know that it's usually just a part of a huge whole. And oftentimes, there will be a keystone piece somewhere in there that is the like linchpin for the whole thing. And it gets stated over and over. It gets repeated. It gets expanded and contracted and tethered and anchored to and moved beyond and then come back to. It's this, it's this thing that's meant to have a flow that expands beyond even just one set of tunes or even one movement. It goes, it goes on. It's, it's, it's more expansive. It's broader than that. You know, it's interesting, I remember uh, when uh, iTunes first came out, (laughs) you guys probably don't remember, Um, it was like 20 years ago, but I remember reading an article by ACDC in an interview where they said they weren't going to initially give Apple permission over their work because they didn't like the idea that their albums could be dissected into individual 99 cent songs. They said they wanted their albums to be appreciated as a piece of art as a whole. Now, whether or not you think that it's art is irrelevant. What I'm talking about is, is that they understood that their album was trying to tell a story and that you just strip one song out and plug it into a playlist kind of missed the point. I think we do that as well. So for an example, I'm actually going to prove it to you, all right? We're going to do a little bit of name that tune, um, and so we're going to have some fun. So I'm going to play you a couple of pieces of classical music, and let's see if you can name them, okay? You ready? (laughs) Beethoven. Well played. Bugs Bunny. Yes. Precisely. Yes. (laughs) That was Beethoven's fifth. Okay. How about this one? very well done. Yes. What is that from? Handles Messiah. Great. How about this one? This one is Dave Maxey's favorite. You need to go and make sure you ask Dave Maxey why this one's his favorite. Okay, ready? Here we go. Okay, well, Okay, hold on. Song-specific suite after. Okay, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies from, Nutcracker. by, <laughs> <know you're> <T-G-L-S-1> <laughs> say it again, <T-G-L-S-1> Tchaikovsky. Okay, that's Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies from the Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky, right? And here's the thing, most of us knew those tunes the second that I played them. <clears throat> and we could pick them out instantly. You might even have them on classical music playlists, right? Like some of you might like them well and say, like, "Yeah, I know that because it's okay." Well, so if you're not a big classical fan, that's okay. But you might be. Here's the thing, though: Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is four movements, and that dun dun dun. That's in the first movement. It's this keystone set of notes, and it is repeated consistently throughout the entire symphony. And what you realize if you listen to the entire symphony is what starts with that keystone gets repeated enough so that by the time you get to the end, it means something more than it did when it started it's been expanded and contracted and built upon and then there've been these crescendos and then silence and it's meant to be enjoyed as a whole see if you would have like gone in and sat down and heard that part and then been like cool peace out that's all i wanted to hear it would have been like well first of all that's really offensive and second of all you're missing the point it's meant to be enjoyed as a whole and that's the same thing is true for the Hallelujah Chorus. Most of us know that because we hear it on commercials and stuff. But here's the thing. It's part of a musical piece that starts with the annunciation of Jesus, the, birth of his, the, the announcement of his birth, all the way through to his birth and beyond. It's a huge swath that tells an amazing story. Same thing for Tchaikovsky. Like if that's the only part of, this, of the Nutcracker Suite that you know, Then you miss the broader story about a young girl who meets an enchanted prince who's fighting against the Mouse King, who gets liberated from his enchantment and becomes a prince. Like, you just miss all of that. We just think of it as like, oh yeah, that was cool. My little sister danced to that one time. It was fine. Anyway, moved on and played video games after that. It's like, hey, you missed it. And, And I think that we do that sometimes with prayer. You see, it's meant to be a symphony. It's meant to understand that there are parts where the people of God in Psalms praise God for his protection over them. And then they drop to where have you gone? Why have you left us? Why have you abandoned us? They move into seeing him miraculously deliver them at the Red Sea and then have them get crushed by the Canaanites at Ai. Ai. We we, we see these amazing stories and beautiful notes of what it means to bring ourselves fully to God in the totality of who we are, knowing that he hears us and that he sees us and that he responds. And then we hear his own son in the garden say, I don't want to do this. And he goes to the cross anyway. It's meant to be an experience. We hold all of those things true. We hold them all in tension. We recognize that it's not cherry-picking. There's a, a, an expanse of prayer from the Old Testament to the New and beyond. And that's what brings us back here to the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, 1 through 4. See, very much like Western classical music, the Lord's Prayer serves as this sort of compact, micro, super dense symphony, and I would tell you that I believe that it is, in fact, the dun 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 of Scripture that all of the prayers that we see in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament lead up to it. And all of the prayers that the people of God pray from the New Testament and forward find their root and their anchor in the words of the Son of God to say, let me teach you how to pray. So I want to walk you through that. And what we're going to do here is, is up on the screens, you're going to see letters in red and letters in green. Yes, it's Christmas. I love Christmas. (laughs) But the letters in red are the passage in Luke that outlines of the Lord's Prayer. They're the ones that we read earlier in the message. But the passages in green are actually from Matthew 6, because the truth is most of the time that we pray the Lord's Prayer, we synthesize them. Okay, we do, we do a synthesis of both passages. So if you see red up on the screen, that's in the Luke passage. If you see green up on the screen, that's the, the Matthew passage, okay? So what we're going to do is, is I want you to understand just how dense the Lord's prayer is and how it can actually hold its ground as that keystone of prayer in human history. First, we're going to talk about the word hour. I think that gets lost on us as modern people. See, most of us in this room are probably Gentiles, right? But here's the deal. In Genesis 12, when God talked to Abraham, he said, I will bless you and all nations on earth will be blessed through you. But by the first century, the Hebrew people thought of God as something that was definitively theirs, he is our God. He is not yours. He's not yours. He's not yours. He's ours. He is ours. He loves us. We're not sure about you guys. If you do all the stuff that we do, maybe. But He is ours. The idea that Jesus would start by saying, no, you start by saying, our, is extraordinary. See, because in the scriptures, we learn that we who were once far off, it's not just that we draw near. It's that he allows us to echo that ancient concept that goes all the way back to Song of Solomon, where we are our beloveds and he is ours. Just sit that for a second. As the God of all creation, it makes sense that he could call us his. His. It makes no sense that we could call him ours. And I don't care who you are today, if you are here or you are online, if you are in Christ, it's not just that you are his, as beautiful as that is, it is that he is yours. And that together as the family of faith, he is ours. Does that blow your mind? Blows my mind. The God of all creation says, You can call me yours. Wow. And what's more than that, we get to call him Father. Pastor Marvin talked about this a lot last week. And I say in prayer all the time Father, you could call us many things. You could call us criminals, that would be true. You could call us condemned. That would be true. You could call us worthy of execution and eternal separation from you. That would be true. You could call us slaves and that would be mercy upon mercy. You could call us friends. That would stop the presses cosmically. But you go even farther than that. In Romans 8, 11 through 17, it says, our, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and by whom we call out, Abba, Father. See, there is no reason in heaven, hell, or earth that someone like us could call the being who created all of it, Father, except that he says we can Father. You know, God could demand that we address him in prayer by his titles of majesty and power. That would be right. But he doesn't. Instead, he goes straight to the most intimate, the most primitive, the very first thing that a baby learns to say ba, 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 ba. We get to call him Daddy. Wow. Hallowed be your name. You probably heard the old joke about the little boy who uh, calls God Howard. Uh, he was praying one day, praying to Howard. Hey, Howard, I got to talk to you about my mom. Hey, Howard, why did you let my grandmother die? And a pastor overheard him and sat down with the little boy thinking he would correct him and said, son, can I just ask you what? Why do you call God Howard? And the little boy looked at him and was like, because that's his name. Our father who is in heaven, Howard is your name, <laughs> right? <laughs> Hallowed means something. And it means more than the three items that Harry Potter has to find, Okay. If you don't know what it means, it means holy. Holy means set apart, other than, transcendent. God became like us in sending Jesus as his son, according to Philippians 2, but he is also not us. His ways are not our ways. He is set apart, holy, holy. Other. You see, as in- infinitely beautiful as it is that we get to call him Abba, he is also holy. And we should never confuse the fact that even though the God of the universe lets us call him daddy, he is not one of us. He is beyond us. Holy other than us. And even his name is Holy. Even his name. You know, when I was in Bible college decades ago, um, I had a young Messianic Jewish woman in one of my classes, and I remember looking over her shoulder one day, and I would see that when she would write the word God, G-O-D, she would write it as G underscore D. And I remember asking, I was like, why do you do that? And she said, my people for generations have refused to speak the name of God lightly. And so this is a way for me to remember, every time I write it, I'm not writing it flippantly, I'm not even writing it so that it just shows up in normal parlance. I am writing it in a way that allows me, as a Hebrew Christian, to say, even my Father's name is holy. And I do not take it lightly. There's a reason why the fourth commandment is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. God is holy. He is so holy that even his name is holy. Holy. He is more than his name, but even his name is set apart beyond, transcendent to, and wholly other than we are. I think it's interesting to note that the next line is, your kingdom come. You see, after we have set up by being able to say, our Father, hallowed is your name, we are then in a position where we can actually start to orient around the idea of how do we engage the most central idea in the New Testament, which is the kingdom of the living God. Your kingdom come. (laughs) Isn't it great that it doesn't say our kingdom come? See, in our hyper-narcissistic world, I do think that the temptation is often to think that the idea is that God's job is to bring about our individual little kingdoms to do what we think is best, preferably with winning lottery tickets. Right? But now that we've established to whom we are praying, and that it is he other than us, the next logical thing to acknowledge is that it is his kingdom, not ours. So in that brief moment, what we are saying is, if your kingdom is coming, then I am willingly submitting and surrendering mine. My hopes, my dreams, my will, my resources, my time, my talent. It's about your kingdom coming, not mine. And I'm acknowledging that in prayer. Your kingdom come. And here's what I would say. See, if those lottery tickets or whatever else it is that you're bringing in your heart to the feet of your king in prayer, if they are not about his kingdom, but are just extensions of yours for your pleasure, your glory, your ease, your comfort, your benefit, your life, your liberty, the pursuit of your happiness, then you must re examine it in the light of His kingdom, not yours. Because when we say, Your kingdom come, that's what we're doing. And the next is like it Your will be done. It's His will not our will, just like it's his kingdom, not our kingdom. Jesus models this beautifully only a few chapters later when on the night before his crucifixion, he pours out the totality of his desire at the feet of his father in Luke 22 and says, Father, I don't want to do this. But then he squares and centers and says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours Here's the thing, guys, I am a big fan of bringing the totality of my emotion to the feet of God. God gave you, he gave you thoughts, he gave you emotions, he gave you desires, and we are supposed to bring them to him. He sees and knows them anyway. I regularly tell people you should pray ugly, right? (laughs) Right? He sees it anyway. I know far too many Christians who are like, okay, is it thee or is it thou? I can't remember. And then I'm, oh, oh Lord, wouldst that thouist no, that's, that's not be I mean, like, stop that. You can pray ugly to your father. Abba, I am super angry, and I'm disappointed, and you disappointed me because I thought you said, and so I, and ah, right? Bring the totality of your heart to the king. You can pour it out. He gave you those emotions. He sees them anyway. The only person you're kidding is yourself. So pray ugly. It's okay. But then the goal is to reach what St. Ignatius of Loyola and modern day spiritual director Ruth Haley Barton calls spiritual indifference. Now, don't don't get hung up. I don't mean, I don't care. That's ambivalence. Spiritual indifference, the way that Ignatius of Loyola and Ruth Haley Barton define it, is the ability to say, I have brought all of my passion, my desire, my dreams, my hopes, I have put them at your feet, and then I am willing to say, okay. Father, I really do just want what you want. I'd love it if it was this, but if it's not, it's okay. I just want what you want. That is spiritual indifference. It's not pretending not to care. It is trusting in the goodness of the one to whose feet you are bringing it and saying, I trust you. I really want the I trust you. And whatever you choose to do here, I'm good with. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. You ever wonder how God's will is accomplished in heaven? I guarantee you that the angels do not offer critical feedback. They do not have workshops, focus groups. They don't tell God how it plays with the marketing team. They don't go on strike if they don't get their way. And they don't threaten to not re elect God if he doesn't keep them or make them happy. Angels don't work that way. They bend immediately, without question, with full commitment to whatever God says. When you read the book of Revelation, you are immediately struck with the idea that heaven is not a democracy. It is a theocracy where God's word and his will are immutable, instantaneous, and permanent. When we pray this prayer on earth as it is in heaven, we are literally asking for God's will to be done the same way here, through us, in our reality right now. Without resistance, without hesitation, without critical feedback, Abba. We want your will to be done in our lives right here, right now, the way it is in heaven, which is instantaneously, without opposition, without feedback, we obey, you speak, we hear, we obey. Let it be the same way here in my workplace, in my family, in my relationships, on my sports team. Let it be as it is there, right here, so that when you come, there's no difference. On earth, as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Sorry. Notice that it doesn't say, Give us each day a guarantee of retirement plans, pensions, 401ks, peace, happiness, loads of comfort, healthy relationships, and yes, please, winning lottery tickets. It doesn't say that. It acknowledges that every day, whether we realize it or not, we live and move and breathe because God wills it and allows it, period. Show me a man or a woman who believes that they can care for themselves and all of their needs, and I will show you a person who has deluded themselves into thinking that they are self-sufficient. They are not. Now, that's not saying that we shouldn't be good stewards of our resources or that we shouldn't have wise people to counsel us on how to do so or how to teach us to do it for ourselves. We we offer Financial Peace University right here at Trinity Church cuz we believe in that stuff, man. What has been entrusted to you, we want to help you to be good stewards of it. Here at Trinity when you give, we have a high bias for stewarding well the resources that we each contribute. Do you know Mike Weller? Mike Weller was a CPA for 30 years. He and Jill work hard to be able to make sure that we have transparency and that we actually do and know things to be able to make sure that everything that we do is not only above board, but it honors God and it honors us. And here's the deal. They know stuff about money I don't even know or get. And like my family, we have, we have financial advisors, That's a good thing. Like, that's not bad. Here's the thing, though. We just don't trust those things. Our hope is not in those things. We trust God to give us our daily bread. And we ask to forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I mean, of course, right? I mean, of course we do that. Of course we forgive as we have been forgiven. I mean, as followers of Jesus, I mean, it's just kind of a given, right? Father, forgive us as we forgive others. This is very interesting to me. Forgiveness is so important in the kingdom of God that it makes it into the symphony of the Lord's prayer. And it's the only part of the prayer where there's any kind of contingency mentioned. Father, forgive us as we, because we, for we. Forgive us because, of course, we're doing this with others. Forgive us our sins because we are forgiving one another. That's just a given in the kingdom of God. See, in Matthew 18:21 through 35, there's a parable of the wicked servant. Maybe you've heard this parable. Jesus tells a story about a servant who owed a huge sum of money to his master. And he went to his master and he pled and said, please, just be patient with me. And you know what the master did? He forgave him the entire thing. I mean, it was years and years worth of wages. I mean, like, he just forgave the whole thing. And then that servant went and found another servant who just owed him a couple of bucks. And that servant said the same thing. Hey, please be patient with me. I'll pay it back. And instead, the servant grabs him and says, pay what you owe me. And then he throws him in prison. And when the master hears about it, he has that servant brought, the wicked servant, the one who refused to forgive his fellow servant. And he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you this immense debt and you couldn't even forgive your fellow servant a couple of bucks? Yeah. It's important. We don't have time to unpack that parable, but the core idea is is that forgiveness is a central theme in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So central that it makes its way into the way we are supposed to engage the God we love, serve, follow, and worship. We have to forgive others when they sin against us. It is an assumed given, and it's important. That's why it's here. And lead us not into temptation. I I think sometimes we think like, why? Because is he going to? I mean, like, why do I have to ask him not to do that? Is he like, oh man, I got all kinds of traps and snares for you. If you don't ask me, it's going to be a day for you, I tell you. It's not like that. See, what we're really asking here is, is we're asking the Father to steer us around the things that we are going to be tempted by. You see, you do have an enemy and he is laying stuff in your way. And we are asking the Father to steer us around that stuff because he knows what we are especially sensitive and susceptible to. See, in James 1.13, it says, God is not tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. God is not tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. So we're asking him to lead us away from it when he sees us walking toward it. And you know what? The back half of that verse is actually, but each man is tempted when? By his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. And then... After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That is a potent image, isn't it? If you're a fan of the aliens cinematic universe, whenever I read that verse, I think of like eggs and face huggers and like giant eight foot tall, like acid slime dripping space cockroaches. I mean, it's like, I'm like, it's a potent image for me, man. I don't want to go near anything that is going to gestate inside me and then kill me when it comes to fruition. So I am asking my father, steer me around that stuff. Lead me not into it. I'll do it on my own. Like if you're not, like I'm fully giving you permission to steer me around that stuff because left on my own devices, I'll just go blundering into it. And I don't want to. But deliver us from evil. And yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Please, deliver us from evil. I want to remind you that God is the only one who can. See, in our culture, I think we trust a lot of other things to deliver us from evil. We trust our military, our economics, our politics, our advantages, our education, our affluence, our technology, our opportunities, and our independence. But when we pray this prayer, just like our daily bread, we acknowledge That it is only God alone who can deliver us from evil, both now and also at judgment. So we ask, Would you deliver us from evil? Our hope is in Him alone. Deliver us from evil. You're gonna pick up a theme here, for yours is the kingdom. Notice the repetition. We started that way. We're ending that way. Yours is the kingdom. Not not Caesar's, not ours, not whatever country you happen to live in. God's kingdom, your kingdom. It's about his kingdom, his alone. It's all his. And the power. It's all his power. It always has been. It is now. It always will be. And by the way, so is the glory. Brothers and sisters, our name will not be lifted up for long, but his name will be lifted up forever. Everything that we do is for his glory. Our joy is that we get to be part of the broader story that he is telling across all of history. But make no mistake, it's his story and it's his glory. It's for him and it's forever. There's no term limits to God's authority. He doesn't go up for re-election at some point. There's no voting involved. He is king. Period. Forever. And for we who are in Christ, we actually get to be part of that. Isn't that good news? That's what gospel means. Gospel means good news. This is the God we serve. He is our father. His kingdom is coming and it will be forever. And we end it with amen. Do you know the word amen just means so be it? My dog Dresden thinks it means that the prayer is over. See, um, I go to bed before my wife usually, but we pray together beforehand. My wife stays up way later than I do. So we pray together, um, and my dog comes in with us, and he kind of curls up on the, sofa, or on the mattress with us, and then we pray together. And then when I say amen, that's his signal that it's time to get up and go into the living room, right? Like, that's what he thinks it means. Like, amen is the signal to get up and go into the living room with mom, right? That's not what it means, It means so be it. It's actually not an ending. It's a beginning. It's a starter pistol. What we're really saying is this thing we just prayed, so be it. Here and now, we'll go get busy. It is a salute that says, yes, sir. Your kingdom come. We'll get right on that. Your will be done on it. Here on earth as it is in heaven. Got it right now. Amen. So be it right here, right now. You want me to go have dinner with that neighbor down the street who doesn't know you? On it. You want me to go help fix that single mom's breaks? Got it. You want me to give money to that thing that's going on on the other side of the world? How much? You want me to go like, I'm on it. So be it. Amen. It's not over. It's just starting. It says, hoo Heard, understood, acknowledged. That's what it means. I wonder what that'd be like if we ended our prayers with hoo <laughs> Right? <laughs> that'd be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? That's the Lord's prayer, brothers and sisters, and that's why, that's why it is the dun 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 of history. It's why it is that repeated keystone that we get a chance to be able to see expand and contract and move and lift and crescendo and drop and silent. Like it's why we get a chance to be able to see it like that because it is this beautiful centerpiece that encapsulates everything that we bring to the father and everything that he speaks and says over us. It's beautiful. Now, what about the parable of the good father and the parable of the the persistent um, neighbor? Those are beautiful too. They get to add texture. They get to add other notes that envelop around the Lord's prayer. They are things that we get to chance to see that this is what prayer looks like and what it means. And it does include times where we get to actually be persistent where we get to rest in his goodness. But it's part of the symphony, guys. So here's how we're going to end our time. And you're going to see how we're going to do this together. What we're going to do is we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together, but we're going to do it in a way that I want to offer to you is something that you can do this week. And it's, it's what I just call amplification. If any of you have ever read an amplified Bible, it's like the verses are nine times longer than they should be right? And the reason for that is because there is this amplification of the concept. So, so you're going to see how it works. What we're going to do is, is we're going to pray a section, and then I'm going to amplify it. So we'll start with like our Father, and then I'm going to pray after that. So we'll all say our Father together. I'll cue you. I'll say something like, and then we all said together, and then we'll say like our Father, and then I'll pray. But I would encourage you this week to take the Lord's Prayer or to take any one of the Psalms, And pray it this way. Stop. Break it into sections and say, what does that really mean? Pray it like that. The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? Well, first of all, he's the Lord. And he's mine. And he's my shepherd. And that means, and like, you can pray like that. You'll see. You'll you'll kind of get how it works. But this is what we're going to do. First, I'm going to encourage you, much like Margaret did at the very beginning, to get in a posture that is comfortable for you and that is prayerful for you. That might be kneeling. That might be standing. That might be sitting. It's okay. Don't worry. Like, like the only thing that's important is that you can see the screen. But other than that, let, let's enter an attitude of prayer as we pray the words of Jesus back to him. And I'll show you what that looks like with amplification. Okay, here we go. We all say together, Our Father, Yahweh, Jehovah, God Almighty, Abba, Papa, and Daddy, you are the King above all kings, and yet you allow us to call you by something so intimate and familiar, and you are ours, all of ours, for you gave yourself for all people here on earth, that whosoever should believe in you should not perish, but have everlasting life. And our spirit bears witness with your spirit that we are the children of God and by whom we do indeed call out Abba, Father. That is good news for me as an only child. I have brothers and sisters. And we all said together, hallowed be your name. Not only are you holy and set apart, holy, other to all created things, but even your name is holy and unlike any other name. You are the I am, the one who was and is and still is yet to come. You are with us and for us and closer to us than even we are to ourselves. You are the space between our atoms and our molecules, and yet you remain completely independent of us, lacking nothing, demanding nothing, needing nothing from us to be complete. You are holy, and even your name is Holy And we all said together, your kingdom come, not our kingdom, not our government, not our world, or even our imaginations and best ideas. This isn't about our kingdom individually or even collectively with all of humanity, putting our ideas and our requests into the hat for consideration. This is about your kingdom, the kingdom of God, the only kingdom really worth having or coming in the first place. And we place our kingdoms and any other kingdom that we would compete with yours where it rightfully belongs back at your feet. And we all said together, your will be done. Not our will. Not our wants, our needs, our desires, our hopes, our dreams, or our demands. This is not about us at all. This is about you. This is about your will, your word, your plan, your story, and your flow from all ages past to now and beyond. It is in your will and your story that ours even finds its place or meaning at all. And so we ask for your will to be done above and beyond any other allegiance or loyalty that we could claim. Not our will, individually or collectively, as a species, or even as an entire planet, or solar system, or universe, or created order. But your will, and yours alone. And we all said together, on earth as it is in heaven, immediate, perfect, without delay or compromise, without degradation or question, without any of us fighting with you or arguing with you about what is right or just or fair or even rational or intelligent, without us telling you whether we want to or not, without us insisting or negotiating or dealing or manipulating. We just want your will done right here where we are, just as it is where you are, here on earth, just as it is in heaven. And we all said together, Give us each day our daily bread. Because we don't trust any other source but you. We don't trust our paychecks or our 401ks, our governments, our leaders, our social programs, or our relationship support structures. We are grateful for all of those things, Holy Father. But we recognize that all good and perfect gifts are from above. Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. We recognize that we are insufficient on our own. We recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask you for all that we need today to serve you and others as you lead and guide us. And we all said together, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We recognize that through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, forgiveness is offered to us freely for all that we have done against you and others, past, present, and future. You have thrown our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. And if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess our shortcomings to you freely. We also offer to you the transgressions of others against us. We forgive them in your name. So as not to be like the unmerciful servant that your son Jesus talked about, who would not offer to others what he had been freely offered to them. Freely we have been given, Holy Father. So freely we give. And we all said together, and lead us not into temptation. Holy Father, steer our steps away from the things which offer, invite, and entice us to ensnare, enslave, or destroy us. You see what we do not see. You know the way because your Son is the way. Recall to our minds your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And guide us by the power of your Spirit to remind us of everything that you have already taught us and also new things that we need to know to follow and seek you. And we all said together, but deliver us from evil. Father, we do not mind going into difficult places for you and with you because we know that you are good and that you will not take pleasure in our suffering. But we also know that we have an enemy who desires to steal, kill, and destroy us simply because we belong to you. As a result, we ask, Father, that you stand before, behind, beside, above, and below us as we serve you today. Where the enemy of those who serve him lay in wait for us to derail or distract us, we ask that you would give us focus, clarity, wisdom, and courage to follow and to serve only you and to know where to go, what to say, and what to do as we seek to do so. And we all said together, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Father, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters. And I pray, Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, a blessing over them as they go out into the world, Father, as agents of your kingdom for your glory. And I ask this in the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you would like to pray with someone, there will be elders and prayer team members down front, and otherwise, you are dismissed. Hope you have a great week.